everybody. Got a great episode for you with Jilly Bond. She's amazing. So amazing we had to break up this episode into two episodes. So you're going to hear about bladder pain syndrome and some of the issues and uh, patterns associated with what we see there. And then in the second part, we're going to hear about uh, how uh, it applies in a biopsychosocial approach with being able to do it in telehealth, as well as protecting yourself from burnout. So here's part one, right after the usual stuff. Hi, welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. And I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. Together we interview leading authorities, we answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information that we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that the materials and the content on this podcast are intended as general information and they're for entertainment purposes only. They're not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now sit back, grab your favourite beverage or do your thing and enjoy the show. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Marika, how are you going? You just uh, remember the podcast and came running back from a walk? I 100% completely remember the podcast. I just went a little further on my walk than I had anticipated and had to leg it back. So I'm a little sweaty. <laughs> but hopefully everyone's just listening via, um, via podcast anyway, not watching. That's and it's good. not about me anyway, because we have a wonderful guest. How awesome is it that we've got Jilly, Jilly Bond. Bond? Welcome. <laughs> Hi. Lovely to have you on here, Jilly. Um, I'm very excited to be here. It's a real honour. I've been listening to the podcast for a while now and catching up with it. It's keeping me sane as we're all isolated, <laughs> catching up with the world of physiotherapy. It's so good to have so many colleagues that um, give of their time and information and knowledge. So thanks, guys. You, you guys are doing a great job. Thank you. We really appreciate all the work oh, that you do as well. Thank you. I will say that a lot of my uh, colleagues in the UK, uh, sorry, in the UK, my colleagues in Perth, a lot of them love your YouTube videos and actually send them to patients as well. And Good. A, wonderful information, but I think also your accent is just really nice to listen to as well. <laughs> <laughs> I feel exactly the same about you guys. We often, I don't know when you're away, but when, when I've been traveling abroad, I often get asked if I'm Australian because it seems that people, especially Americans, have difficult, difficulty understanding the difference between a British accent and an Australian accent. So um, we can obviously plainly hear it. But um, yeah, it's nice to listen to you guys. He yeah, I do. Sophisticated. I, yeah, not, not at all. Um, and I can put on my northern, northern accent and no one will understand me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do all the videos because uh, we're just trying to get as much information out there as possible to patients um, because I get so many emails from people all over the world asking me questions and I just thought you know what let's just try and put some evidence-based knowledge out there um, for free because it makes the world a better place and it doesn't matter um, if people are thinking about doing it do it because it doesn't matter if it's said before if I've said it go and make a version of what I've said because or what you want to say or something different because the more voices we have saying mm. evidence-based solid um uh, advice and education um the more that actually you know different patients will pick up different things from different videos so yeah i'm gonna i'm i'm in the process of putting out a whole nother block of them um as much as possible because at the moment obviously we're going to have a paucity of treatment so patients aren't going to be able to access 
um, the, the treatment that they need. So people are turning to YouTube and people are turning to Google. So as much as possible, if we can get stuff up and out there, we can help people while they're not able to get into hospitals. Did that make it really depressing straight away? Sorry, guys. <laughs> not at all. I, I'm, I'm just hey. thinking. And no, wondering about the lag that Marika has on her video right now. Uh, <laughs> I do have a bit of a lag. Sorry. I'm on, I'm too far away. Hey, Jilly, just in case people have been living under a rock, can you just tell us who, tell people who you are and what your, what your job is and what you love doing? Um, so I am a physio. Um, I am a pelvic health physio, but I count myself as an MSK physio. And like Sandy Hilton says, I just do it in a cave quite a lot with my eyes closed. Um, it's, uh, and I would, yeah, I think it's really important that all pelvic health physios think of themselves as a, an element of MSK and we bring all our skills to that. So I um, have been doing physio for about 12, 13 years now. And I started off in the NHS and I rotated around the NHS for about eight years. And during that time, did lots of different things, but within the first couple of years really um, focused on pelvic health um, and after that I left the NHS and went to private practice for about five years um, and I ran the pelvic health service in private hospital for five years and I just finished that um, and we set up a kind of an inpatient outpatient service dealing with men women everyone and because I've got really interested in pelvic pain um, and I just, I couldn't find answers to questions I had. So I needed to ask them myself and see what happened. Um, and as with all good maths, uh, so I'm endlessly working on a PhD, um, which will happen at some point. But since then, I've kind of been trying my hand at being involved with as much pelvic pain research. I'm thinking about ways of better serving patients because I've had a few key triggers um, uh, of patients who have set me off um, work with them because we just they, they didn't fit the mold that I was taught and there was this mold that you get taught when you're a physio of this is how you treat people um, and none of these people fit that mold as much learning and development as I could I went to as many conferences and courses as I could and I've been developing my own ideas and working about um, areas of, of pelvic pain and how we can improve um, problem as opposed to just treating the symptoms. And that involves a much more of a psychosocial side element of treatment, which actually helps the bio. So that's what I'm interested in. And I've just taken a leap and I'm, a leap and I, I'm now completely working for myself and from home, from my spare room, where I currently am. Um, but for the last four or five years, I've been teaching um, professional development courses called the Happy Bladder course, which is all about improving parasympathetic activity um, within your viscera as a way, which is something the physios can do very easily as a way of getting into working with visceral pain. Um, it's, it's called silly, a silly name for a reason, because it's all about being happy and parasympathetic. Um, and I've been teaching that for about four or five years and I am in the process of beavering away at getting this online in the next month so um, that as many physios can access it as possible. And I'm going to chuck up as much as I can for free because 
um, as a slight aside, I've done lots of being very significantly ill myself at time um, over the last 12 years, and I've done a lot of nearly dying. Um, so I have a bit of a, a perspective on life about what's important and what isn't. And I've got enough money to get by at the moment. We've got access to food. We have more than enough toilet roll, if anyone needs any. And that wasn't because we stocked up. That's just, um, that's our normal state of being. Um, so if I can put anything out for free, I will. And I think I'm going to put the course up for at least half price, if not less, just because we're all going to be struggling. Um, and this might be a prolonged period of time. So keep your eyes peeled because it'll be online as soon as possible. Um, and trying to do as much as I can to share what I'm thinking about. Um, this whole area of somatosensory awareness, how, do we, how we deal with visceral pain syndromes, it freaks people out. And I, I was that clinician in clinic when a patient sat in front of me um, with horrendous bladder pain and this awful backstory of um, she'd had a, an infection and it hadn't really gone away. She didn't know what to do about it. And she'd seen about four or five different consultants over about five or six years. Had it had taken over her life. She had little kids, she'd had to give up her job. She was miserable, hopeless, um, and sat in front of me as, as the last ditch effort. And I kind of went, what do I do? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, so we, and, and the way that I ended up treating her much more as I just tried to approach her as a human as opposed to a, um, a pelvic floor. And we worked it out together. And I'm really interested in talking to people and learning and working out internationally as this area of research is evolving, um, how we can move forward with reducing people's visceral hypersensitivity and pelvic pain states. Um, in a way that's really effective and evidenced. Um, so we're, I'm kind of working on a lot of the evidence, that we're trying to work on the evidence at the moment. Anyway, so that's me not in so much of a, a nutshell. I've had coffee this morning, sorry. Don't ever apologise, Jilly. We love you. We love it. Um, and you're having more coffee, so it's going to get even more fun in a few minutes. Yeah, I'm going to have to put the brakes on how fast I speak because I get faster with more coffee. <laughs> that's awesome it just reminds me of that brooklyn 99 episode of where everybody's moving super slowly and they're going why is everybody moving slowly but that all yeah. drunk massive amounts of caffeine <laughs> yeah i turned into that um uh, that squirrel from over the hedge uh no i haven't seen over the hedge for many years oh. i don't remember it there you go. oh well it's another thing to watch during your isolation period <laughs> yeah we've been podcasting actually it's been really fun <laughs> So, um, out lots of content. It's really useful. Thank you, guys. Oh, well, hopefully people are enjoying it. Um, one of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting that you just said was, you know, getting to know that the person is a person, not just as a pelvic floor. Mm. You know, I, I, I really do think in a very biased sort of way that we are taught to see people as a diagnosis, as a body part you know, the receptionist, or, or you, you know, you, you're talking to a friend, oh, I had a knee Rico the other day that came in after they hurt themselves at soccer. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, we really dehumanize people. And I was, I was guilty of it, pretty guilty of it, because you just do what the people around you do, you know? Um, yeah, that situation's awful. Yeah. We can't put I, people in boxes. No, no. How much in your journey, particularly with the pain uh, side of things, 
how much do you think is actually the technical structural knowledge about the exact processes that are going on versus your work as a therapist and connecting with people? How, how are you viewing that balance? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think 80% of what I do is um, uh, talking and listening. It's more listening than talking. And one of the most important skills that I think all physios should go and look at, and certainly at the moment it's becoming more important as we can only talk to patients, um, is uh, going doing coaching skills and listening, active listening, receptive listening, that kind of, that kind of work. Um, I, yeah, I, I observed this in my, the reason that I kind of drew more towards pelvic health is I observed an area in physiotherapy in which my skill, um, in being able to sit in vulnerability with someone was useful. Um, and that my skill in doing that comes from being gravely ill and having died many times nearly myself and that that situation and that whole that that is my reality that's my truth and that's what I live with with a mechanical valve and lots of other things and what I have observed in my own journey and how I've been treated really brought me to this place where I understand that sitting with someone's vulnerability is important now in pelvic health you have an amazing opportunity that if you open yourself to listening to the humanity of someone at the same time as using your clinical brain to diagnose what's going on and if you listen with their emotional vulnerability you are going to get much more of a clearer sense of their neurological system how how their neuroimmune system how it's wired so i think um, I think what you're asking is how much is stuff and how much is thinking. Um, and I think it's all one. So it's important to have a good understanding of the hardware, the software and the computing is how I like to think about it. So, you know, what are the physical dysfunctions? What, um, what are the, what's the programming? What are the processes? What are the habits of this person? And then what is the underlying emotional um, need what is the need state? Because pain is a need state and emotions are a need state. Um, and sometimes we express our emotions, um, our need as a pain. Um, and you've got to have a good understanding of all of that stuff. Um, but you, you can take it to whatever depth you want to. Um, but I think being open to seeing the whole human is vital. You know, I, when I, I still do MSK um, and until last week I was still, you know, seeing, I love Australian um, shorthand. You call it Ricos, reconstructions. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. Um, yeah, total hips and knees as we call them or knee replacements. We like long words. I think, it, yeah, maybe because that makes us sound clever. Um, so seeing a knee Rico, um, it, it, uh, my patients with hip replacements would, I would, other physios, you know, might be tempted to spend 20 minutes with that person as they first come back in, showing their exercises, check their pain's all right, and chuck them out the door and then have a cup of tea and finishing notes and have a rest for the rest of the 40 minutes of that session that was allocated. But I would have them in there for an hour talking about how they're feeling, how's their sleep, how's their pelvic floor, are they achieving good erectile function um, if they want to, all this, this stuff which 
um, they would come out going, you know, what? I don't feel I don't I didn't expect to be talking about those things necessarily, but I'm really happy I did. And I picked up on so many issues, you know, people um, uh, we I used to do hydrotherapy with those kind of patients as well. And they'd, you know, come to the edge of the pool and say, my erectile function is much better now. Thanks. And I'd be like, that's great. Hooray. There are four other people in this water. This is not a space <laughs> that we need to be discussing that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. But I, and I think you, you're going to make so much deeper connections with patients, um, which lead to real structural change in their brain and real structural change in their neuroimmune system if you allow yourself to. And it doesn't mean that you have to bring yourself to it. Um, you don't have to open and tell them everything. You can maintain professionalism, but you have to be opening to open to listening to them. And that is a skill and it's hard and it's tiring. Um, and there are definitely seasons in life where I've been more able to do it con consistently and, and there are seasons in life where I've had to take more breaks um, to, to protect my own kind of emotional reserves. But I think if you, yeah, you, those skills in listening to the language a patient use. So for example, yesterday I was um, talking online to a, a very complex history of a young person who had very weird embedded infection that unfortunately was there for 10 years um, and this person is only about 20 years old and after we were talking for a while I just repeated back to them I said now you've said there that your body is if your body is able to achieve a stool if you're able to pass um, poo then it feels better but if it doesn't achieve it and I said that language is very interesting that you use there it feels like you're almost not in your body that it's something you're observing and this person was like, yeah, I really am distanced from it. I don't feel like I know myself. And that's, um, it, some people called it my woo, or um, there are loads of us working like this, but it's really important to pick up on that stuff because I can give them this person defecation dynamics. I can teach them how to poo. I can relax their pelvic floor. I can do manual release. I can do all these things. But if you, you don't tap into what's important to them, and what is driving these things, you're going to get a, what we'd call a, a half-assed treatment. You know, it's, it's not even good enough. It's just ticking a box. That was um, awesome, Julie. I think we might have to come back to, in a little while, um, talking about how, as therapists, people can actually take care of their own mental health, especially if they're working with a lot of chronic pain patients. I think that would be really useful so that they, you know, can pre prevent some burnout. Um, and certainly I know with some of the public health physios that I know who do a lot of chronic pelvic pain work, it's actually, especially if there's a lot of uh, sexual trauma, that it can be pretty overwhelming. Um, so we might come back to that in a bit, but it might be really interesting because I think for those that don't maybe see a lot of visceral pain, bladder pain type syndromes, and I know even the terminology has changed quite a bit in recent years, you know, interstitial cystitis and all sorts of, there's, there's been some terminology changes, right? But if, um, if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of a brief overview of, I guess, if someone, of, of the kinds of things people will say when they come and see you, when they have a bladder pain type syndrome, just sort of, I know you've given an idea about some of the language that you might hear, but it'd be really great just to kind of give us a little visual of what that might sound like when someone comes to see you. So with bladder pain syndrome, um, uh, they classically, the diagnostic criteria that as physios, we are allowed to diagnose, but again, it's a different conversation about whether or not we should be telling people and how much we tell people and how we say it. But the diagnostic criteria, the kind of things that people will be saying are, um, I have this pain in my pelvis. 
and it can be anywhere in the pelvis, but classically it's um, suprapubic region, so above the pubic bone, around where the bladder is, into the urethra, um, and perineum, so between the legs and kind of gooch region um, that people talk about. Um, the pain gets worse when my bladder fills, so when I need a wee or I'm filling up, it really hurts. Um, I, I have to go often, and when they go, when they release their bladder, it feels better. And even if that's a momentary release, but the first criteria is they've got pain anywhere in their pelvis and it has to have been there for about six months. Um, the second criteria is that it, it gets worse when the bladder fills and it improves when the bladder's emptying. The third criteria is that there is an increased um, sense of urgency. They've got a rush to the toilet or frequency, so they're going more often. Those are the three main criteria. And I, when I teach, I say to, patient, to the physios in the room to begin with, put your hand up if you're seeing interstitial cystitis, bladder pain syndrome patients, and about one or two people will put their hands up. Um, and after we've gone through the criteria and done a bit more about the pathology of it, I then put the hands up and everyone, <laughs> yeah, everyone puts their hand up because these are the patients that are referred to you with the prolapse, that their symptoms of prolapse are getting worse when their bladder fills and it's painful. They're the patients with dyspareunia or vaginismus that can't achieve intercourse, that their pain is related to how often they go for a wee. So they can go for a wee and then it achieve, uh, be able to have some sex, but then it's really painful and it's always painful afterwards. They're the patients with chronic pelvic pain, um, with testicular pain, with um, chronic prostatitis, which is nothing to do with the prostate, um, that are uh, referred to you with possibly with incontinence, as well that are having this. So any, any pain state that is altered by the bladder, that is to do with the bladder. Um, and a, this is why it's important to be a good, to keep up your MSK skills, because we find some of the time that the lumbar sacral nerves have an impact on that. So you need to be kind of ruling out mechanical drivers as well, um, which they do exist alongside chronic drivers and, and chronic pain is a very complex and beautiful thing and the body's doing so so much to try and protect people it's it's quite incredible but you need to be kind of looking at whether or not we've got hip lumbar pelvic um drivers for this or we've got pure visceral drivers so they it doesn't change in any position now the one position that people might find that it feels a bit better is sometimes um, sitting on the toilet and relaxing and people will go and sit on the toilet to feel better and that's because they're getting a little bit of a change in state at their pelvic floor it's not because the pelvic floor is released and um, that's a very contentious topic which we can talk about um, because a tight pelvic floor doesn't mean a painful pelvic floor a painful pelvic floor is painful um, so toilet might feel a little bit better for a little bit of time and they might just want to go and sit on there or they might find sitting on a ball or doing yoga sitting in a, in a squat position or happy baby those kind of things feel a bit better um, yeah so that's bladder pain syndrome um, it's very it's very similar to um, other kinds of crazy pain states that we get in the body that don't make any sense the body is very good at being very good at protecting ourselves so you know anything which just feels out of the ordinary from a mechanical driving picture um is is usually bad at home now the difference between bps and ic the i was at essic which is the european society for the study of ic hilariously um, uh, the European Society, the Society for the Study of Bladder Pain Syndrome, but it's called Essex, it used to be high C, in November. And they are, there's a big international 
lack of consensus about whether or not we call it interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. And I would always say to physios, please can we use bladder pain syndrome, BPS, not painful bladder. Think about your biopsychosocial BPS, we're used to saying that anyway. It just means that we're all using the right same terms and that's really important. As someone that sits in the literature and the research, the more that we can use the same words, the more that we're searching for the same terms, we're talking about the same thing. It means that we can have good constructive arguments and, and, and look at things together in the right way. Talk about the same thing. So there, there's been a bit of contention for a long time because this pain state that we're talking about is not necessarily an inf uh, a chronic infection and for years it was thought to be a chronic infection of the interstitium of the bladder the lining of the bladder a cystitis of that um, which caused this pain now there is some evidence that in some patients and i i believe this is quite a small amount potentially there is embedded infection and that needs treatment and there are some kind of but again, there's a lot of contentious treatment um, options out there. In the UK, we have Professor Malone Lee, his team and the people that he's trained and, and quite a few interesting, wonderful consultants in London at UCLH and around the kind of London area who will prescribe long term antibiotics um, to treat an embedded infection. But when I went to Washington and talked to a lot of the researchers about the, the, the potential of the embedded infection kind of theory, a lot of them are saying, well, you know, we'll walk around in the population with embedded MRSA in our nose and we don't have a, an outbreak of nose pain. So the body is very able to deal with embedded infections and ignore them if it doesn't need them. The, the pain state is separate from the infection, potentially. And what we're trying to get to a point at is phenotyping more beautifully and more effectively, who actually needs that long-term treatment and who doesn't. But um, that's a longer conversation. If, if anyone's ever struggling, give me a ring. I haven't worked it out yet, but I've got a feeling. It's totally not evidence-based, but I get a kind of, I've done this a lot now, so I can kind of work out when the moment is to kind of say, right, we need to go and explore some antibiotics long-term with you because nothing that we're doing is working and you, you've got this really weird pattern given the treatment I've given you. Um, so in my experience, this makes no sense. Therefore, it's probably time to have a look at looking at long-term infections. So that that I see, they are trying to have a subclassification. So bladder pain syndrome is the umbrella term, and I see is a subclassification of people that have Hunter's lesions that are active and potentially embedded infections, which is true. I see when the when the doctors talk about this and and the medical field is undoubtedly um, biased towards surgeons in the area and consultants who their skill set is surgery. So you've got to remember that these guys are really, really, really good at doing observations, investigations and surgery. And that's that's their skill. So that, that's what they're going to lean towards doing first. And that's where the information and the, the research goes. They. Um, they want to do their best for patients. So if they find a Hunter's ulcer, they will ablate it. So they'll burn it away in the bladder and they'll say you have interstitial cystitis. And this sometimes helps patients. But there is evidence that we find Hunter's lesions, Hunter's ulcers in um, asymptomatic bladders quite a lot. So again, the jury's out on whether or not this is a true subcondition. But at the moment, they are um, treating patients in that way if they find Hunter's lesions they they ablate them but they're very very rare I mean my consultants um 
one of the urologists I work with a lot said he hadn't seen one in about five or six years and he's doing you know 15 cystoscopies a day maybe not 15 now he's just treating COVID patients anyway um but that that kind of subclassification of IC is a bit unsure so we're, we're still in this flux period I tend to um sit very much in the bladder pain syndrome um spectrum understanding that it's heterogeneous so everyone will present differently everyone has a, a different story and within chronic pain it's this wonderful mobile space that you can you can go in any different direction within and look at any different aspect of it and bladder pain syndrome fits that mold um, so yeah that's definition is difficult at the moment it's always changing but within bladder pain what we're now looking at trying to do is phenotype the person and not the part which is the important thing so how do we um, when patients have those three main areas and um, they hit those diagnostic criteria how do we um, how do we best treat those that massive heterogeneous spectrum of patients and We've tried phenotyping into different areas. So there's the U-point phenotype, which um, looked at urinary symptoms and psychological and infection symptoms and all that kind of stuff. And it gave you a bit of a score. And it was a bit useless because it was all biomedical. And it said, right, we'll give them antibiotics and don't do this and do this. But we're kind of, it, it's much more complex than that. And the, the, the new work coming out in neuroimmunology shows we need to be looking much more to the type of person, their previous experiences their thoughts, their beliefs, their level of self-efficacy, um, catastrophization, central sensitization, all that kind of stuff. And we need to be taking that into consideration more within patients and also treating the biological issues. Yeah, so that's where we are at the moment. It's interesting what you said right at the very end there, that uh, looking at all the different things like central sensitizations, their beliefs, their attitudes, meaning, story, all of those sorts of things, uh, catastrophization or the, or the worry that they have about what's going on. Um, that, that is a very interesting, uh, thing to look at. And, and, you know, for those, for those of you, because you can't possibly know, Jilly and I were on the same course with Carolyn Van Dyken. Um, and we were lab partners during that. So Carolyn yeah. was, Carolyn was on the uh, the podcast a, a few episodes ago talking about sad cliffs and um, and uh, yeah I can't even remember have we have we missed something about pain but anyway it's um it's interesting how you know you've really tried to work through a lot of the different things and something that caught my ear was you've done this for a long time and that there's a weird pattern that doesn't make sense. And that's, that's the time to kind of, kind of say, okay, this doesn't make sense. It, uh, maybe you need some antibiotic therapy. What is a typical pattern? What is something that does make sense? What is that type of, um, what, is, what is that type of uh, presentation that you do think is consistent? And, just one more little added side bit. It sounds like a lot of this stuff isn't you're making, you're making your determination based on touching and assessing, um, mm. you know, so this, this goes to the telehealth part of things. 
you know, a lot of what you're doing seems very applicable to sitting and having a conversation. And, and really, if, if I was your client, I'm paying for that massive brain that you have and what's in it um, and being able to sift through all that information. Yeah. So what is a what is a typical presentation and um, how how are you hearing it? What does it sound like? Um, absolutely. So it, it sounds like um, I often it sounds like a there is an initial trigger. Um, so that's one of the things I missed off that story of the three diagnostic main diagnostic criteria is there's always a trauma or a trigger. Now, the, the trigger does not need to be a urine infection. Um, quite often it is, um, and there will be someone that's had sex and got a urine infection afterwards or um, just picked up a, a routine urine infection or had a series of them. And it's generally that that infection is never effectively treated or after it's treated, the symptoms remain. And so they get better for a while with antibiotics and then it comes back and then it's never really gone. And that will be several years of history. Um, it's, I've also seen it with any kind of trauma. So there is a, there is a trauma to the area. Someone, I had a horse rider who fell awkwardly on a, um, a stile who she was getting into the field, really smacked down onto a pubic symphysis. Um, you can have physical traumas, you can have road traffic accidents, but they can also be, um, mental, psychological, mental health issues. So, um, uh, those of us that work in pelvic health know that we have a higher population of people that have adverse childhood events um, and also bad things that people do to each other because humans can be horrible sometimes. So when those things occur, um, there is always a trigger and it, it seems to be that we may have a underlying prime within the system to respond with this absolutely ridiculous amazing huge response to protect the system which ends up with this beautiful series of symptoms of um you know i've had well i, I started getting this pain and um six years ago seven years ago three years ago whatever years we're talking years it can be months um and uh no one's been able to tell me i've had mris cts cystoscopies i've had bladder dilatations i've had all these things and nothing they do changes my pain that's the common presentation now my expectation in clinic is that we can change that and it should change now the research i did was looking at therawands i'm not therawand girl i did it because um at the time i was in the nhs and we um, we were seeing patients once every six weeks if I was lucky. So I needed a way of, of them continuing treatment between sessions. And I wondered um, if we could give people ones to keep um, working with their pelvic floor, because at the time I thought that was important. And the trust would not support buying them for people, even though they were 30 quid, because um, there was no evidence behind it for safety. So I did the safety stuff for the UK. And um, there's a little bit of a feasibility saying, look, it's absolutely fine, at which point we could. And what, what I looked at, interestingly, and it correlated and it, it reflected the international treatment, is that if you take someone with those symptoms and we do not, and you don't phenotype, you don't talk to the human, you know nothing about the human, and you work with their pelvic floor um, manually and with down training and with any way that you want to, so all of the standard physiotherapy input, so optimize how they have a poo, make sure that they're passing soft stool and regularly, work on that, work on constipation, 
optimize their fluid intake so that we want the fluid intake to be high. We don't want it to be too high, obviously, if they've got medical issues, but we want them to be passing things through their bladder regularly. So we're um, washing out any potential infections and also making sure that the bladder lining is um, not irritated by strong urine. We want to work with their diet to make sure it's not triggering them in any way. And people aren't stupid, so they know what makes them feel worse. Um, work with them to help them to not eat the things that make them feel worse because, you know, chocolate bloats me, but my goodness, it feels great when I eat it. Um, we all know that we should have a certain diet. So help them to do that. Um, help them to get some exercise, make sure they're sleeping well. And what else did I do? Um, uh, then we did 15 minutes of myofascial release, which is a term I'm using loosely at the moment. I worked with the pelvic floor with a contract, relax, gentle pressure to stretch, always sub threat. And that's absolutely key. Physiotherapy should never hurt anyone. And I am absolutely, I feel so strongly about this, that when we're working with a sensitized nervous system, never press hard. It's always to the tolerab tolerability of a patient. So sub threat treatment. Um, contract, relax, contract, relax. Because when you get a contraction of the muscle, um, a, a spontaneous volutional contraction, you're going to get presynaptic inhibition and better lengthening state. And we're not doing that to lengthen the muscle or relax it. We're doing that just to desensitize and get the muscle to realize it can do other things. And it just doesn't need to just be on its preset saying ow all the time. Get that moving for 15 minutes once a week. I did that for six weeks with patients. and One group went away and kept um, doing release exercises and yoga, optimizing all of the rest of the standard stuff that we do, a little bit of walking. And then another group used ones as well. So they were doing self-release um, for five minutes, 2.4 times a week on average. Um, so pretty much every other day-ish, three times a week-ish. Um, and after six weeks, in their bladder scores, we saw a 50% reduction in symptoms. So how often they were going to the toilet, how painful it was when they went, how much bother they were, how much bother they felt from their bladder symptoms. I hadn't done anything to their bladder. That was both groups, Julie? Yes. Yeah. And that, that showed that physiotherapy works, um, which is awesome. At that point, you can see then you don't have to intervene with someone's pelvic floor all the time to achieve good improvements. At six weeks, then I left them alone and the two groups continued. The group, um, to that, that first six week period, the group that had used the TheraWand in between my sessions working with their pelvic floor had got, um, I like to use technical terms, so they'd got more betterer, fasterer. Yeah, so it improved better. Um, continuing from there, I left them alone for six weeks. I said, go crack on with everything. And the group that were just doing um, thinking about self-release, breathing techniques, um, uh, continuing to optimize their pelvic floor and my control group, they stayed absolutely the same. And we had almost like a, on average, they stayed the same. There were some people that continued to improve, but that's really valid because that shows that actually physio input works and then people don't get worse again. You get them to a point and then they're able to maintain that, which is really important. The group that had continued to work with their own pelvic floors um, continued to improve. So they had another 12% improvement on average um, in their scores. And we're, we're, on these outcome measures, I think a 14 to 16% change in one of them um, is uh, clinically significant. So we had another clinical significant improvement in their scores. And that really reflected the data from the Fitzgerald papers um, and not the Chiarioni, but we can talk about that later, but the Fitzgerald papers, which are the big famous ones in this area working with 
people with bladder pain and chronic urological pain. Um, so basically, you, you should be seeing change in patients. So now, I don't, I don't think patients need to be using ones. In 95% of my patients are using the ones that they were bo born with, which are their thumbs. Um, and a lot, that's if I'm doing manual release with them. A lot of patients aren't doing that to themselves. And again, it's about phenotyping the person, not the part. But when we, um, uh, there was a thought there. Oh gosh, it's gone. I looked at the sky. It's too pretty. Um, okay. You saw let me the back sun. Up. It's the UK. I know. This is why I'm excited. It completely threw me. There is sunshine <laughs> and clouds and some little, some seagulls. There was a, yesterday there was a seagull that flew into my window that was quite startling. Um, so yeah, we should see improvement and it, you, you should be seeing week to week improvement. Now, what I did, obviously, because it was a research trial, I had about seven different outcome measures and I tracked them weekly with patients. And that was a massive finding clinically for me was that if you track outcome measures, it gives you so much confidence because they will come back in at three weeks and say, everything's worse. It feels awful. Nothing's helping. Meh. But if you look at the figures with them, you'll see that the flare that they're having is less than they came in with. So their score is lower throughout the board. And I had lots of people flaring and my, my data, I'm quite, I'll put some pictures up on my social media um, so that people can see it. But the, the, the graph comes down and then it comes back up again and comes down and then comes back up again. But it's, it's small peaks, what I like to call bumps in the road. There will be bumps in the road and you hold your nerve and you keep going with the same treatment. And you need to be doing this treatment for about three months. But you should see continuous reduction generally with a few bumps in the road. So if I get six weeks into treatment with someone and it, it looks very different now, I don't have a cookie cutter treatment. Some people are writing letters to forgive their vagina for bleeding. Um, other people are, um, you know, doing CrossFit and stretching. Um, it, it's completely everyone's different. But I would expect to see a continuous improvement or at least maintenance for a week followed by improvement within a flare and then improvement. And if I'm not seeing that by six weeks, that's the point at which um, I'm beginning to think in the back of my mind, right? Treatment isn't effective. We need to change something up. We need to add something. I haven't got to the crux of the problem. We need to be talking more with this person about how they're feeling about treatment. Are they engaged in it? Do we need to do something different? And if I can get to three, if I get to three months and I can see this pattern of this patient and I, it's a lot of holding your nerve when people come in and they go, it's not any better. Oh, you're going to be so angry with me. And I always say to patients that I'm not precious. If it's not working, tell me, you know, we, we, this is a collaboration. We're working together here. So I give you the ideas and you go and see how they fit with your body. Um, and we work together. So get them to hold your nerve. And when they come in and they say everything's worse, just go, okay, that's really bad. I'm really sorry, but we, we know this can happen sometimes. Should we, should we try a few more weeks and we'll see. Um, if you get a pattern where they have flares and they're completely random. So I would sit with a patient and there was a, one of, of my, um, one, one thing to know, all of my treatment patients that were on the study, I saw three of them afterwards for continued treatment because part of being a researcher is you have a duty of care to give people the treatment that is required. And three of them put back up afterwards for a little bit. And one of them came in and she went, I just need to talk to you. I'm having a flare and I can't find my bear. So I talk about bears in patient, uh, with patients. So what, what is the trigger for them to flare up? And sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's diet. And we went through everything. 
and um, she had been to a uh, a music concert and she'd stayed in a tent and she was incredibly worried about getting an infection because not being able to shower every day and using wet wipes and um, she'd come back in a really anxious state and we managed to find that that was her trigger and when she realized it then everything was fine she did a bit of work with the pelvic floor for two weeks it was a bit uncomfortable but actually she she didn't see me again everything was fine another one flipped back in um, about six months later and said again I need to just, I need you to talk to me because I can't find the trigger. I can't find the trigger. Um, and we talked about everything. And then I said, okay, well, fine. Look, how's, how are you? Um, and really got to try to dig through how her life was. She was like, well, I'm fine. You know, my boyfriend's, my boyfriend's moved in. We've got a new flat. Everything's going well. And oh, I hate my job. I hate my job. That's what it is. So our physiotherapy session was writing a CV. And then the third person comes back in and goes, um, we, we look for any kind of environmental trigger. Has she, you know, she had a new job as a waitress. Is she having to hold her bladder too long? Has it been triggered in that way? Are there any other issues that we need to look at? And we couldn't find anything. And there was this horrible spike. And she got some antibiotics from the GP and that helped bring the spike down. And physio, physio didn't work. It was no, her pelvic floor was far too painful. I asked her not to work with it because it was just it was it was angry. And there's a difference between a pelvic floor that when you touch it is painful, but then when you keep touching it and you're gentle and sub threat, it improves. And a pelvic floor that's painful and you're gentle and you talk to them and you spend five minutes with your finger not moving, maybe doing some gentle contract and relax, and that pain doesn't change. And she had that situation, and we did. I saw her through one flare. She got a bit better with mostly with antibiotics. Um, and again, she came back in probably five or six weeks later with another flare. And when I palpated, I was just like, this is an angry pelvis. This doesn't fit the mold. We can't find a trigger. There's no environmental um, dietary physical flare, flare trigger. Um, there's no emotional flare trigger. Your environment's fine. Nothing's changed. You're feeling great. You're doing everything. I think this is an infection. This is just really weird. Um, and it's those spikes that are weird that don't make any sense. Those are the ones that you need to be sending to the, the, the specialist to say, right, can we get some hip recs? Can we get some um, long-term antibiotics in some form? Can we get some proper testing that isn't midstream urine, MSU, dipsticks, which are not worth the paper they're written on? Um, can we do some other stuff? Can we do some proper extended urine cultures, which is what we did. So that's, sorry, that's a bit of a long answer, but that's, um, that's my thinking when it's weird. I actually think that's extremely helpful um, for the yeah, physios because yeah. it's, it's really nice to have an idea in your head of what the expectation is and what that pattern is going to look like and to know that there's going to be those little bumps in the road um, and that if you can give them that reassurance that, hey, look, let, let's just see if we can ride this out and hopefully the next one will be less. Um, yeah. And if they feel confident enough in you and your treatment that hopefully they will be able to continue with that. I think that's really helpful. Um, it's interesting just going back to when you were talking about the research that you're doing and the sort of self release, uh, release in inverted commas, but the, yeah. that sort of self um, manual therapy that patients were doing through your research. Nowadays, would do you palpate when you're not obviously doing telehealth, when you're in your clinic, do you palpate? the pelvic floor of all of your patients with bladder pain syndrome. And when you are doing that, 
Are you looking in particular for reproducing symptoms, for reproducing to some kind of pain? Um, how, what's your sort of thought process with that? Um, I, as a roundabout answer, I once, um, as a baby physio, was observed doing a lumbar spine assessment of a 68-year-old man. And at one point, um, I did a prone PA of his L4, L5, L6, you know, L6, there isn't an L6, my goodness me. Um, <laughs> there can the be. There can be. Well, very rarely. Um, I went up and down his lumbar spine, feeling his lumbar spine, how it moved. And afterwards, the clinician, my amazing mentor, Rob, awesome, Rob Nees, um, he said, why did you do that? And I said, because it was the next thing on the list. Um, and he went, okay, that's all right. I, that's kind of where I'd expect you to be right now because I was a baby physio and I was learning. And he went, okay, well, what, what, what did you expect to find when you did that? And I said, well, he's 68. I thought it would be really stiff. And he went, and was it stiff? I went, yeah. He went, okay, so was it very useful to do that? And I went, no. And that's how I feel about palpating pelvic floors in people with bladder pain syndrome. Anyone that tells you they're in pain, if you touch them, they're going to be in pain. So it has limited value. It has huge value from a therapeutic handling point of view. You can do beautiful therapeutic assessments where um, you, you get patients to the point of being able to have an assessment for the first time without any pain. I do a lot of telling patients that physio should never hurt. If it's hurting, we're getting it wrong. We need to do something different. Um, and then there shouldn't be martyrs and grin and bear it. Um, so no, I, I don't assess every patient. Um, I'm in private practice, so I have the luxury of being able to have an hour with someone and then send them away with some ideas or things to do and then get them back for a second hour um, the following week or whenever. And I tend to, if I'm going to assess, I assess on the second session to get a baseline. But invariably in chronic pain patients, it will probably be three, four, five sessions in before I assess someone vaginally um, or anorectally because there's so much more that needs to be done to prime the system before I, I know I can touch them in a way that's not just going to be traumatic, intrusive, and not have a negative cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, so I'm, if I touch someone in the first session with pelvic pain, I can tell you what I'll find, it'll hurt. <laughs> the pelvic floor will be overactive. Um, the, it is very important that we do that. And it's interesting, you know, you will find changes in their autonomic, what I call autonomic tells or autonomic consent. So, you know, and again, this is, this is when I say there's so much priming to, to be done. If you go to a patient and they are, um, their, their legs are flaring red and patchy, they're saying, yeah, 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 assess me. Yeah, it's fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I want to find out. Please tell me. But you can see they look stressed. Their hands, their palms are sweaty. You're getting all these autonomic nervous system signatures of threat. Don't touch them because you're just reiterating to them, to their system, that there's a bear eating their vagina because it's going to hurt when you touch them. You've got to work on getting that autonomic nervous system to calm down um, before you go near it and touch it because then you're more likely to find stuff and you might find that it doesn't hurt when you touch it. And that is an amazing experience for that patient to have. So, no, I don't assess everyone and I'm out and proud about it. We have um, in the UK a minimum data set requirement that we um, assess them subjectively. And then on the objective part, it says appropriate objective assessment. Now with me, that appropriate objective assessment is a Sadcliffe assessment as per um, Karen and Van Dyken. So using lots of questionnaires to phenotype where they are and what we need to look at. And it's a 
really in-depth subjective and possibly some movement analysis but it, it's rarely a vaginal on the first session because it has limited value thank you sorry i'm just i'm i'm still at that bear eating vagina yeah uh, <laughs> this yeah. is the way i speak to my patients i love it it's, that just cracked me up oh my gosh <laughs> that's what you mean by you couldn't find the bear or they couldn't find the bear yeah 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 <laughs> Um, we talk about bears as attacks on the system. So sometimes, you know, they've got a big old bear gnawing on their vagina constantly, but then also someone pulls out and them in traffic or they get a bill through the door and that's another little bear. And if there are too many bears, they're running from too many bears. They can't be calm in their system. They're going to be heightened. They're going to feel more pain. So um, I think I stole it from Laura Mosley. I'm not sure. It's definitely someone I stole it from, but it makes sense to me. Fair enough. Fair enough. My goodness. There's so much good stuff, Jilly. I, I love I love listening to everything that you say. In fact, continue. Just continue. <laughs> Please jump in, guys, because um, again, coffee. You know what? I'm going to bring on my second. Look at this. I came prepared. I have a <laughs> coffee. I'm going to swap my coffee. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about uh, the pathology um, so that you can understand why all this stuff is important because i think that um when patients when people come on my course they get why i do so much talking because of the structural changes so a lot of the time and i think as a as a physio i used to feel that i didn't have the um freedom or the life experience or anything else to be able to talk to someone about their life and also that it wasn't allowed and that it wasn't within my scope of practice but the more the more that i've learned about visceral pain syndromes and i know we're talking about bladder pain syndrome but you know this is all of your pain patients so the course i teach is not just for bps every everything is applicable to anyone in pain the more that you understand about the underlying pathology the more that you realize actually when the way we talk the words they use and how we approach them psychologically is important in structurally changing the underlying processes and that's the research that really that we're looking at doing and, and judith thompson and carolyn anthony i know you've been involved there's lots of kind of delphi studies going on with questionnaires and and other stuff to, towards sensory processing cortical ideas which is all looking at how we can do that in a structured way that makes people feel more like it's in their scope of practice um because obviously we should all be working on scope so the way i explain it to patients is bladder pain syndrome or any visceral pain stuff happens down there and stuff happens at the top. So we get um, problems with changes with your hardware. So at the level of the bladder, I'll go into slightly more depth for physios, the level of the bladder and pelvis, the bladder gets turned up to 12. So we know we get a change in the nerve, um, the nerve function of the bladder lining. We get um, increased afferent activity. We also get a change in the nerve function of the pelvic floor. But really interestingly, the pelvic floor gets an autonomic neuropathy. And I'll let that sit there for a bit. Because when we think autonomic neuropathy, you think other conditions like CRPS and other things, which is why I say the body is so beautifully um, adept at making these crazy pain states from nothing to try and protect yourself. So the, the pelvic floor has a, an altered dysfunction in how it can have blood flow through it and the nervous function within the pelvic floor, which means that it gets stuck and boggy so it tends to be overactive, short, tight, stuck, boggy, edematous. 
So you're not trying to release it by doing manual therapy. What you're trying to do is reverse the autonomic neuropathy, which is transient. And you're trying to change the set point of the nerves. And you can apply that to the whole area. So if you see someone has vulvodynia, we know that we get altered perception there as well. So altered blood flow and altered, um, uh, altered ner nervous function. And you see that vaginally as well. When people are in pain, they're always dry. They're not going to be able to function normally. They're not going to be able to create normal mucus discharge. Um, so because of altered function within the whole area. So what we're trying to do is reverse this autonomic neuropathy. But I say to patients, the area is turned up to 12. It's on high alert. It's got its immune function, immune cells like the army, I'm pretending to hold a gun, um, stationed there ready to shoot and kill everything. And you also get heightened immune function. So you get true inflammation um, within the lining of the bladder. The lining of the bladder can break down. That's why you get cloudy urine because that's the cells being released, shed from the lining, uh, the lining of the bladder. Um, everything is just super, super hypersensitive. That also creates changes at the level of the spinal cord. And we also have, in BPS specifically, a problem with our vagal nerve. So vagal tone, which is the nerve that goes between your brain and your viscera, is reduced. So our parasympathetic activity to the area is reduced. Now your parasympathetic activity is the one that kind of turns everything down, gets you to chill out, have more endorphins. So you get a souped up system, which is being kept on red alert because it's sympathetically driven. And the sympathetic system is anything but sympathetic. It's about running away. So it's already souped up. It's got difficulty doing anything because it's got this autonomic neuropathy. It's stuck in place and it's supercharged. That's the peripheral issues. And that's why I called it the happy bladder course, because what I want to do is improve parasympathetic activity as one. And secondly, work manually to try and change that autonomic neuropathy and the hypersensitivity at the area. You don't need to do manual stuff. And that's the beauty of it. I, I once, my favorite patient, which I'm in the process of writing up as a case study for pain, hopefully to get it in there, is um, a lady with a 46 year history of pelvic pain and BPS following a delivery who is completely pain-free in nine months of treatment using graded motor imagery, which is a whole nother conversation. She looked at lots of pictures for nine months um, and we talked about things. She wrote letters to her vagina. She did some expressive writing. She did some exercise. Um, and I assessed her three times. And those three assessments over nine months were therapeutic assessments, as in, can you feel my finger? and being allowed to accept it. She now has normal intercourse and absolutely fine pelvic floor, nothing hurts, complete reversal. So we've got all of these crazy things going on downstairs. Um, then at the same time, our computer system is rewired to keep us in that state. So we get changes, there's three little areas in the brain that are very closely connected that are responsible for how full your bladder feels, how often, uh, how much attention you pay to your bladder and how tight your pelvic floor is. And they get upregulated. So you get more of a sensation that you need to empty your bladder before you would normally. So it becomes really super hypersensitive. Um, your salience network pays more attention to your bladder. So it's on your mind all the time. And your pelvic floor automatically goes into tension. That answered, that was a PhD question of mine. Why does the pelvic floor get tight in pain states? Why is it overactive? And that was the first half an hour of the Washington conference. It was answered, hooray. Um, 
So that's souped up. But then also, if you're in pain for more than a couple of months, and Melissa Farmer's looked at this and she's found, I think in rats, it's about six months. You, um, not six months, it's um, six weeks. Uh, you, your brain is spending so much energy kind of going, right, what, checking in, what's going on with my bladder? Where are the bears? How's the bear doing? Where's it, where's it biting now? What do I need to do? Okay, get the army down there. All right, let's, let's keep everything aware. Let's grow some new nerve endings so they can report back. We need more people reporting. It spends all that time um, uh, managing this pain state in your pelvis that it doesn't have time to look over its shoulder and find the other bears because your brain's preset is to keep you alive. So if it's doing that, there's so much neurological activity taken up in your computer, looking at one thing, it shifts the responsibility of looking after that pain state to your limbic system, which is literally depressing because your limbic system is, is um, the area of your brain that manages your emotions. So now you have your emotional center managing your pain state. So you feel miserable, your pain gets worse. Your pain gets worse, you feel miserable. And that's why these patients are anxious, depressed, hopeless, helpless, catastrophizing, centralized. They have no other way to be. Their brain is, that, that is how they are wired. So I know they're exhausting, but we, we, you kind of have to accept that that's what they're gonna be and not blame them for it. So when we start looking at Sadcliffe's as per Carolyn Van Dyken's course or any other kind of psychological profiling of patients it's because I want to know how limbically driven this pain state is. I want to know how much I need to do before I can start turning up the parasympathetic activity to the viscera so that I can start touching the pelvic floor and working with that autonomic neuropathy. And the nice thing about Carolyn's course, and it was a game changer for me, I'd been kind of wandering in the dark, just being a good human, listening to people. Um, but it gives you a structure in which to assess bit by bit how to do that. So if you can do a Sadcliffe assessment with someone, and I don't do the full assessment with everyone, I do the first kind of Sadcliffe first bit. Um, that gives you kind of a window and you can say, right, you're not too far down the scale. I think I might try touching you today. Or... I can see that actually catastrophization is a really big thing and you're really overburdened um, by your pain state and you're overwhelmed. You know, you're, you're there's a lady I assessed yesterday whose depression, anxiety and um, stress were all in the extreme scores. So clearly I'm not going to go anywhere near, I'm not anyway because I don't want COVID, but um, I'm not going to go anywhere near her physically until we can work with getting some of those structural changes. And the good news is, the really good news is that we have evidence that you can change some of the structural processes in the brain. You can rewire the brain because the brain is always plastic and you can change things peripherally. It just takes time and effort and working with your patient. Um, and that, so that's why these psychological phenotypes are really important. I mean, that's only two parts I've mentioned. There's masses of changes. And if you're really a brain nerd like me, go um, look at the MAP Research Network work. Jason Kutch um, has got some really interesting work, his team, um, as has uh, Chalimsky and Peters, um, looking at brain scans and finding that the brain scans of patients with bladder pain syndrome are very similar if not identical to the brain scans of people with fibromyalgia, widespread pain states. So this, this part of phenotyping the person is something we need to be doing in physio as a way for us to achieve change physiologically, biologically in their pain by looking at the psychosocial. So that's why it's really important. And 
Um, I think sometimes people get confused. They don't really they don't really feel sure what they should be doing. So a good place to start is by doing Carolyn's course. Yeah. Wow. Two two really quick questions. Well, one really quick question. You just said map. Do you mean brain mapping or did that stand for something? Uh, map. The Map Research Network is the MAPP. Um, is the multi uh, multidisciplinary multi? Some, I can't remember. MAPP Research Network is the is about two hundred and fifty researchers from all over the world that have come together to look at urological pelvic pain states. Um, they're all massive heroes of mine. They're really interesting people. You can find a lot of them on Twitter. Um, but if you if you put MAP Research Network into any search engine, you'll find loads of papers that are produced. I think it's coming to an end this year. I sat. I, chatted to um, Mr. Clemens in uh, November, and I think it might be coming to an end this year, but they're looking for refunding and stuff. So it's been going for quite a few years. Hey everybody, hope you enjoyed that part one. Hang in there for part two, okay? See you soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.